Hi, everybody. My name is Gavin. I'm an alcoholic. And Roy gave me his uh, throat problem. <clears throat> so I hope he can bear with that this morning. I'm real happy to be here. I'm happy to be anywhere. Uh, and I'm particularly happy to be sober. I don't, uh, I don't have to drink today. I used to have to drink. I didn't know how not to drink until I met people like you. There's a short version and a long version of my story. My, the long version takes 52 years. The short version, we don't have that much time this morning. The, uh, the short version goes something like this. I used to drink alcohol and, uh, and do stupid things. And then I met people like you, and I uh, don't drink anymore. But at least the stupid things that I do, I, uh, I catch on to before too long. In our program, we talk a lot about character defects and shortcomings. I had most of what I call character defects and shortcomings in my life labeled as virtues <laughs> before I met you people. And they're real hard to see, and it's real hard to pry them out and to convert them into uh, uh, what the truth really is about what's going on in our life. For those of you who've never been a speaker up here, you may not know that uh, the committees are kind enough to pay your plane fare and give you a nice hotel room. And uh, more often than not, what they usually do is put a gift in your room. And because I know so many people here in El Paso, I couldn't wait to see what the gift is because it always symbolizes what they think about you. If, uh, if you're a, a good-looking lady, it's usually flowers. If uh, you're kind of a macho guy, it might be a belt buckle with Texas on it or something like that. Uh, if they think you're particularly spiritual, be a, a subscription to the Grapevine or Al-Anon Forum, something along that line. I want to thank the committee for inviting me here and for the five-pound bag of nuts. Uh, maybe they know me a little better than I thought. If there is anything that I would like to say about Alcoholics Anonymous uh, for the benefit of the newcomers or anybody else who's forgotten, it is that Alcoholics Anonymous works for those people who are alcoholics and do the simple things that the people that have gone before us suggest. We don't have to drink. And I didn't know that. I guess there is a, another version of my story, and that is that I... Uh, when I drank alcohol, I could be anybody I wanted to be. And that was wonderful. It was like alcohol worked for me. And then when I wasn't looking, it got turned around. <laughs> and I was working for alcohol. And I wasn't who I wanted to be anymore. But I couldn't quit drinking. And the more I drank, the more I became someone I didn't want to be and someone I didn't approve of. There are all kinds of different drinking stories. Mine is different, I suppose, from the viewpoint that, uh, that I didn't know I was an alcoholic till the very last minute. Nobody ever called me one of those. I never thought that I was an alcoholic, never considered that at all. But I was absolutely convinced that I was crazy. And the reason I knew that I was crazy was because I did things that I didn't want to do. And not only did I do things that I didn't want to do or didn't approve of, I got better at them. <laughs> and I kept doing them more often. And it got to such a point that if 
I wanted to do something real bad, like return a phone call to you. It was almost a guarantee that I could not accomplish that. The real simple things in life that most people know how to do were the things that I was having trouble with. And yet all the people that I worked with and worked for uh, seemed to be just perfectly happy with me. And I kept trying to talk to them about my problems. And I even talked to some of them about the fact that I thought I drank too much. I didn't think I was an alcoholic, but I knew I drank too much. And they all said something like this. Well, if, if, if I worked as hard as you did, and if I was a little weird like you are, uh, I think it would be okay to drink like you drink. So I had all these people that I trusted and looked for help from who were encouraging me to drink. And even after I did realize that I was an alcoholic and I went to some of those people convinced in my own heart that I was an alcoholic to let them know that and to ask them for help along those lines, to a man and to a woman, they all tried to talk me out of that. And a lot of that did have to do with being a priest. They said, no, you can't be an alcoholic, you're a priest. Well, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Uh, I've met a whole lot of recovering alcoholic clergymen since I've been sober. And uh, uh, that's why when I'm around AA, it's a little unusual today because a lot of people know me from different uh, places and different things. Uh, I really do like to just be Gavin because I stayed drunk a lot longer than I had to by being special, by being different. And I think that's part of our disease, even though we don't know it when we first get here. And that's a belief that all of us have one way or another, that we're special, we're different, we're some kind of an exception. Yeah, that stuff works for other people, but if they really knew what was going on inside of me, if they really knew how terminally weird or strange I was, or what a unique case I was, then uh, they'd know that, that I'm just an exception. <laughs> Among the many things that I have to be grateful for in Alcoholics Anonymous is that I'm, I'm just like anybody else, where I hurt and where my disease is active and where it needs to be arrested. It was interesting that I didn't know that I was an alcoholic toward the very end. I, I always like to give credit to a psychiatrist because we badmouth those people a lot and I have the opportunity to say something nice about one of them. Because I thought it was crazy, I went to this guy and he had a wonderful reputation. People would go to see this guy and get well. And uh, I told him what I thought my problem was and I saw him for four sessions, four different times. And at that fourth session, I worked up all my courage and I asked him what the diagnosis was, what he thought was wrong with me. What, and I, the way I asked him, I remember this clearly, I said, what kind of a nut am I? And what he said was, I can't tell you. Well, I knew what I had was bad, but I didn't know it didn't have a name. <laughs> and that was just about the most pain I was ever in in my life when I got that kind of confirmation from an authority figure. But it got worse, and it got worse real quick. He says, I don't know what's wrong with you, and I can't help you, and I don't know who can help you. So now, whatever it is I have doesn't have a name. It's so, so strange and deadly. <laughs> it's also hopeless. Nobody can help. And, but it got worse. The pain level really went up quick. Because the next thing he said was this. I don't know who can help you until you quit drinking. Well, you talk about getting upset. <laughs> See, because at this time, I looked at alcohol, that was my problem, but that was my solution. If you were as nuts and as wacko and as out of control as I was, and walking around loose 
and people looking at you thinking you're okay, that's a hell of a burden to carry. And then you find something that brings you a little relief, like alcohol, and then he wants to take this away. Now, my reputation far outlives the facts in many cases. And a lot of people think I'm a nice guy, so let me tell you what I did next. I called up 11 or 12 people that I had sent to him and told each one of them, this is this nice, kind guy, that I was party to some private information that I felt in conscience I could share with them, and I felt obligated to let them know that the person I had referred them to, this psychiatrist, was incompetent. <laughs> and that they really should seek help elsewhere. Alcoholics aren't vindictive. <laughs> that they know about themselves. But boy, do we run roughshod through people's lives. Now, I checked that man's professional reputation. What was the inside information that I had knowledge of? <laughs> he, he, was, he was so unprofessional, he told me to quit drinking. And you see, today I got to make amends to that man, and I'm so happy that I did before he passed away. I got to go back to him and to thank him for being professional enough to tell me that the drinking in my life was where we had to start and also for being professional enough for telling me that he couldn't help me with that because he didn't know anything about that. So he said, please go somewhere else. Find someone that can help you with that. And in a conversation a few years later with him, I said, why didn't you tell me to go to AA? He said, I knew that's where you wanted needed to go, but I knew how angry and upset you were with me, and if I would have suggested it, you would have wrote it off right up front. So I just said it in that general kind of way, hoping that maybe you'd find AA, because I knew that that's where the answer was. That was a wonderful, loving, professional man. He was professional enough not to take my money. He could still be taking my money. But he told me he couldn't help me. That planted the seed. Besides being addicted to alcohol, I'm addicted to self-help books and have been for many years. And uh, I, I realize I'm not alone because I, I now notice in most of the bookstores those particular journals and volumes and books are, are near the cash register, and I guess they recognize an impulse buyer when they see one. <laughs> There's kind of a funny joke going around. If, if you're in a strange town and you don't know how to plug in the program or find meetings or other people in your 12-step program, just go to a bookstore and stand in the self-help section and somebody will show up. Right? <laughs> Anyway, I didn't know anything about AA. I knew I was crazy, and I knew I needed help. And I was fed up with the intellectual approach to it. I've been a student most of my life. So I read some of these books that I thought were absolutely wonderful. And, and I have the same reaction to anyone. I don't know what the latest one is, but if you show it to me today, I'll probably say the same thing. This is wonderful. This looks like the truth. It's simple. I could do that. I've never been able to do it. Uh, but I think that's going to do it for me. Huh? So without going into a whole lot of details, I chased six of the authors of very popular self-help books down and interviewed them to see if they could help me. And just in case you have the self-help book addiction also, let me save you a little money. The books are a lot better than the folks that write them. Uh, some of those people need care. 
and there's one man, I'll never tell anybody what the book was that he wrote because it's literally saved lives. Uh, he's strange. <laughs> Real strange. I'd come back from one of these adventures, exhausting my money, taking this trip across the country to, to visit this person that I knew was going to be my guru and have the answer because I read his book. And I was all disillusioned, and this wonderful thing happened. Let me jump ahead a little bit. <clears throat> there was a woman who joined our home group who had absolutely no background whatsoever. Reminds me a little bit of our speaker last night in terms of any formal religion or spirituality or church affiliation or anything. She not only had never been in a church, no one in her family had ever been in one. Anyway, when this gal, as I remember, she was probably about 39 or 40, first got to AA, she found out right away that this is what she wanted and this is what was going to work for her and that it was on a spiritual basis. And boy, if anybody had been around longer than she was, in particular if they'd been involved in some kind of church or a history in terms of spirituality, she just picked your brain and she wanted to learn it all at once. She's a very quick woman. And after a meeting one night, I was in the kitchen, this little AA club, cleaning up the coffee cups and ashtrays, and uh, she came up behind me. She's very quick. And she said, Gavin, if you had to describe God in one word, what would it be? And, and I'm preoccupied with the dishes. You know, that's about all I can handle at one time. And uh, if you had to describe God in one word, what would it be? And, uh, and I surprised myself because I heard myself say, sneaky. And uh, I'd not learned that in church. I learned that in my experience of a higher power with your people. And when you consider my background, you know what happened next. I was hit and almost knocked over by this wave of guilt because uh, that just didn't sound right. If I had to describe God in one word today, and a lot of you would probably agree with me that God is loving and forgiving and helpful and accessible and friendly and interested, and, and more in program terms, caring. I've just spent two years studying in Minnesota. One thing I've learned from Minnesota AA, they put great emphasis on step three and on the word care in step three. We just don't turn our lives and our wills or decide to turn them over to God or a higher power. We turn them over to the care of a higher power, as if this higher power cares for us. And it's been my experience that that higher power does. But if I had to describe God in one word today, I'd still say sneaky. You know, and I mean that not irreverently, but with a great deal of affection. I just think it's great. And you'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of that real quick. Because here I, I've exhausted all my spiritual resources with my craziness problem. I've chased down these self-help book authors. They would disillusion me. I'm sitting at the breakfast table hungover one morning saying there's got to be an answer. And I read in the paper where the circus is coming to town. Ringling Brothers is going to be in Phoenix for seven or eight days that year. And I get this wonderful intuitive thought. I'll go to the circus and ask the circus people the meaning of life. And I knew right away that they knew the meaning of life because they come from a lot of different cultures and they've traveled around the world and they've had a hard life. And I bet they got a lot of common sense and a lot of wisdom. And you know that all happens to be true. And I knew a friend that used to travel with the circus and he entered, it's a little bit of a closed society. They don't trust outsiders real quickly. But he introduced me to some people. I got to, when I was drinking, I used to be able to do all kinds of things I can't do anymore. I got a press pass. I borrowed a studio-quality cassette recorder from a TV station I did some work with. And I'm walking around. I get into the circus twice a day for six or seven days for nothing. 
and I get to walk around interviewing acrobats and clowns and lion tamers. And can you imagine a drunk at a circus with a paper card? It was wonderful. And I'm telling them all the same story. I say, I work with teenagers. I have a youth group. And you know how screwed up teenagers are. Everybody says, oh, yeah, well, you know, everybody agree with that. I say, now, if you've learned something in your life, and this isn't a bad question for you to think about today. If you've learned something in your life that's worth knowing, that you think is real good common sense and wisdom, that you'd like to pass on to these kids, can you tell me what that is? And I'll pass it on for you. And almost everybody kind of slowed up and thought a little bit, but everybody came up with an answer. And I got wonderful answers. Now, when I look back at that, I know I'm the screwed up teenager I'm looking for the help for, but I didn't know that at the time. The circus people were so nice to me. The last night they were in town, they were packing up to go to Los Angeles, and a couple of them had promised to talk to me, and I hadn't got around to it. So I went down to the railroad tracks where they're packing up the train to move to Los Angeles. And people in this part of the country will understand this part of the story. I parked my car in a vacant lot, and there were some weeds growing in the vacant lot. And what I failed to notice is the weeds were growing out of this irrigation ditch. So my car is in this hole in the ground. The back wheels are up in the air, spinning around. I'm not going to get any traction. I can't get out of there by myself. But I'd seen a lot of forklifts and tractors and things like that around the circus, so I knew I'd get somebody to pull me out. So I went running up to one of the circus people as best I could for the shape I was in that night. And I said, uh, my car's in a ditch. Now, that's a clue to alcoholism right there, because somehow I created the impression I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> my car's in a ditch. We're going to have to get that out. Here's $10 if he can pull me out. He said, oh, I have nothing to it. See? So he, uh, he went away, and I thought he'd come back with a tractor pretty soon. He came back, but he had an elephant instead. They put a work harness on the elephant. She pulled my car out of the ditch in front of what is now a large crowd. And uh, in case you wonder if this happened, there was a time in my life when I wondered too, but I have three witnesses that saw it the same way that I did. The most painful thing about that evening is I remember, now remember, I don't know I'm an alcoholic, right? I, I think I'm crazy, and I'm looking for the secret of life from people that I think have some wisdom. And I still remember some little kid yanking on his parents' clothing, saying, look at the elephant, pull the drunk's car out of the ditch. Okay. This kid had it figured out, huh? Hadn't got through my head yet, huh? You know what I'm thinking about? How dare parents have a young child like that out at this time of night? <laughs> you know, this whole problem's going on, which I caused, and I'm in the middle of, and I'm shifting the blame way over here, see? And if you're stupid enough paying attention to me, I can get you shifted over there, too, and get the heat off myself. Alcoholism's a lot of things. One of the things it is is false issues, not calling things by the right name not owning up to the responsibility that should be ours. We have an incredible ability to shift blame. And there's some people that love us enough that they're willing to pick up blame. And we keep picking on them. And for a long time, we don't have to face up to things. Like all my enablers there who said, oh, you can't be an alcoholic. You're too nice a guy. You work too hard. Besides that, you pray a lot. And you're a priest. And you're not an alcoholic. Boy, did I like to hear that. So I got here thinking alcohol was medicine, failing to see that I over-medicated myself and that the dosage was toxic for me. And I was dying and I didn't know how to live or how not to die. 
And if I were to sum up real quickly what I think was wrong with me, a different way that I can use for people to talk about what I think alcoholism is, not in a clinical way, but where we live, <clears throat> alcoholism is soul sickness. My soul was sick. I was almost dying. I kept getting in my own way. I didn't need other people to upset me. I'd argue with myself till I lost the argument. The book talks about self, and that's probably just as good a way to talk about that as any. Anyway, the elephant pulled me out of the ditch. I went home that night, and literally, here's what happened. I sat in the kitchen drinking scotch out of a coffee cup. That's another clue. Social drinkers don't do that. And I was looking for what you know I was looking for, and that was escape and oblivion. And it was just too embarrassing an evening. And something different happened that night. I can't explain it. I don't know exactly what it was, but I know how I remembered it and how it affected me. It was as if I didn't get oblivion. I didn't get escape. It was as if the more I drank, the sober I got. That's how I felt. I drank for escape, and I got clarity. And it's like my whole life is passing in front of me. And what's passed in front of me are all the mistakes and the negative things and the problems that I've had. And then I'm thinking about that day, and I'm saying, this is impossible. What an impossible day. I couldn't park in a ditch. Not me. That's impossible. And an elephant sure as hell didn't pull me out. I know that didn't happen either. And then the next thought I had was this. Well, if these impossible things could happen, then you could be an alcoholic. First time I ever applied that word to me. And as soon as I had that thought, I knew that it fit. Now, that's a little unusual way to admit your alcoholism. And it's funny how you can know certain things and not know certain things at the same time. I'd received some real fancy counseling courses and I was real happy about that, but we weren't taught anything about alcoholism. And I was so ignorant of alcoholism, I had a person come to the rectory. This would be two or three months before the elephant incident. And the guy was coming off a of bad drunk, and he was shaken. And he said, you've got to get me help. He said, I'm not going to give you a big story. He says, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm in trouble, because I've had DTs before, and I know what those are. And I'm going to go in DTs pretty soon, and you've got to get me help. And I don't know what DTs are. But I went down the end of the hall to get him a glass of water, and when I came back, <coughs> he passed out. I figured those are the DTs. He said he was going to have them, and I guess that's what's going on, and it's bad, so I better get him some help. Now, with all my formal training, you know who I called? I'm living in Phoenix at this time. I called the Arizona State Liquor Control. <laughs> you know, the guy that give you your beer and wine license. I figure that's what they get paid for. See, and here's the sneaky part about it again. I guess in the Old Testament or in those times, God sent angels. You know, sometimes today for certain people, he sends elephants. <laughs> that night, the Arizona State Liquor Control sent a plain clonesman around who happened to know a lot about alcoholism. And he knew that this guy wasn't having DTs. He knew that he just passed out. And he knew he didn't have any money, but he knew a halfway house that would take him for nothing. So he says, why don't you help me? So we pile this guy in the back of this police car, and we haul him off to this halfway house. And while they're checking this guy in, the gal who ran the halfway house 
is given me a cram course about alcoholism, having no idea whatsoever that I need to know about that stuff. You know, the focus is over here on this other guy, but I'm the beneficiary of what's going on. I had to laugh when Roy mentioned that thing about Time Magazine. Let me tell you what that was really all about. Um, back in the days when Lyndon Johnson had this war on poverty thing, a whole bunch of us got together and we wanted to put on a little workshop, and it grew and grew and grew. And, and what we did was uh, we had people come and live with us for a whole week, and we had them experience poverty. So we had them go thinking. We had them go pick cotton. We had them panhandle. We gave them 75 cents to make a phone call to find out where Catholic Charities was and to take the bus to the other end of town, only to find out they didn't have enough money and it was going to take them six hours to get there. And we had them in police cars and all kinds of things like that. Anyway, it hit Time Magazine. And I got my picture in Time Magazine. And isn't this wonderful? I get my picture in Time Magazine. I'm talking to an individual down on Skid Row, and the caption under the picture is Father Gavin on Skid Row. <laughs> and everybody thinks I'm doing these wonderful things for these other people. And I don't know if I ever said it in public, but you can figure it out just by putting the dates together. I was drunk when they took that picture. And I was on Skid Row. I had a skid row in my room. When I did finally sober up, I, I went to treatment. To tell you what skid row looked like, I missed the plane three days in a row. And the reason I missed the plane three days in a row, I just had to clean my room up before I left, because I didn't want anybody to see what my room looked like. And there was something like 18 fifth, empty fifth bottles in that room. There were plates with half-eaten food on it that had been there for God knows how long. You know, I didn't need to move to Skid Row. I moved in and in with me. God's sneaky, and I'm glad he is. Because one of the things I treasure most about alcoholics, and I, well, let me say a little bit more about drinking, so you know I belong here. Uh, before I sobered up, my parents lived in Tucson. I lived in Phoenix. That's about 140 miles apart. And I love my parents. They're wonderful people. I used to love to go visit them. Every two or three weeks, I'd go down to Tucson. There's a little town about halfway in between called Casa Grande, Arizona. And I spent a lot of time in a restaurant that no longer exists, Snow's Inn. It was the only 24-hour-a-day thing. I spent a lot of time in Snow's Inn in the middle of the morning trying to figure out if I'd been to Tucson or if I was going to Phoenix or going to Tucson, and, and I get it figured out, I'd get out in the car and I'd drive two, three miles down the road, and, and I'd remember that it was really the other way. I had been to Tucson, so I'd turn around, drive back through Casa Grande, get ten miles the other way, and well, now wait a minute, that conversation I had with my dad was last month. Maybe I haven't been to Tucson. So I spent an awful lot of time in Casa Grande. Uh, I don't ever remember drinking there. I remember trying to sober up a lot because I drank in exotic places either side of that, like Picacho and Maricopa. Uh, I remember being in my favorite bar in Maricopa one night. This will let you know that I'm an alcoholic. Uh, and I just ordered a drink, and a woman came in, and she just flipped out because she caught her husband with his girlfriend. And she'd suspected this for a long time. It's the first time she saw him together, and the lady just lost it. And there was a pool table in this uh, bar, and she starts picking the balls up over the, off the pool table and heaving them at this cup. Man, she could throw it, too. You know, she's chipping plaster and breaking mirrors and bottles and everything. In about 10 seconds, everybody's out in the street. And then I remembered I left my drink on the bar. Okay. 
so I walked back in, rescued my drink, and joined my friends out in the street. Now, social drinkers don't do that. That drink was more important to me than getting hit in the head with a cue ball. I never got in a whole lot of trouble externally with the law or bosses or anything like that. So the self-deception was fed by the fact that I never fit my image of what an alcoholic was. But that night when I realized that I was an alcoholic, even though a couple of months prior to that I called the Arizona State Liquor Control, I'm so <laughs> ignorant of what's going on. I did remember that night something that I'm so grateful that I remembered. I had had two friends, one lived in Santa Barbara, one lived in Tucson, that at different times and in different social situations I complimented. Let's just stay with the Tucson guy. His name was Larry. And I saw Larry, who was chairman of a committee, and this was one of those swanky, <coughs> uh, oh, whatever you want to call it. It was a status thing to be on this committee. And it didn't make any difference what the committee was about. When we had this particular meeting one day, everybody had forgot to do their homework. So nobody had done their assignment, and everybody's trying to figure a way to weasel out of that and to blame somebody else. And Larry's the chairman. And Larry sized that situation up in about a second and didn't embarrass anybody, didn't talk about what you should have done, just talked about what you were going to do and keep up doing the good work. The meeting lasted about 20 minutes. Everybody was absolutely relieved because nobody got caught. And they all felt good because he made them feel good. And when that meeting was over, I said, Larry, that's the slickest political thing I've ever seen in my life. How do you do that? Where do you learn this stuff? And he laughed. He said, I'm an AA. <laughs> I said, you mean Alcoholics Anonymous? What's that got to do with being able to run a meeting well? He said, well, we just learned to, we're pretty good judges of character by the time we get into recovery. <laughs> Somehow I tucked that back in the back of my mind that Larry was in AA and that AA was something he felt comfortable talking about. When he told me that story, he wasn't trying to 12-step me. But when I realized that night that I was an alcoholic, I picked up the phone and I called Larry. And I was crying so much he didn't know who I was. And, and finally he said, oh, Gavin, it's you. What's the matter? And I finally blurted it out, I think I'm one of you. <laughs> and then this terrible thing happened. He said, oh, that's terrific. <laughs> you know, the worst name I can think of calling myself, I suddenly call myself. I reach out for help and I get some flake on the other end of the line that gets like, real happy because I'm one of those. Huh? Now, you all know why he was so happy, because there was somebody who really needed it, who, who was reaching out. And, uh, I didn't stay sober right away. It took a little while. Of course, I had to find the best place. Uh, that took about three months. And I talked to Chuck C. on the phone <coughs> before I, I went away. And Anyway, I got sober and I got to AA. And most of the things that I really care about, like God and spirituality, I look at completely different since I've been in AA. And the way I like to talk about it is I like to talk about my higher power as the God of my experience. The God of my experience is very different than the God of my training or my upbringing or my home or my profession. And the God of my experience is uh, mischievous, playful, almost perverted sometimes. <laughs> things that he does. 
But I want to put a big plug in, as a couple of the other speakers have done this uh, this weekend, for sponsorship. Because I got a sponsor right away. And uh, Les is now dead. But he certainly lives on in my memory. And I've had a sponsor ever since then. I've gone through a few of them. A couple of them have died. One of them didn't work out because he agreed with everything I said. That was, that was not what I needed. But I still have less in my memory that I can check things out with. And Les was the perfect sponsor for me. He walked me through the first three steps on the telephone. First phone call was four hours long. I don't remember all of it. Les did. He walked me through the first three steps on the phone before he ever met me. And I really believe I took him by the time that was over with. Even got down and knelt talking to this guy on the phone who I hadn't met yet. And he was the perfect sponsor for me. He was a TV salesman. He didn't go to church. He didn't like people that went to church. <laughs> he didn't trust people that went to church. And I want to jump way ahead to something else that, that's really uh, been on my mind. I don't know exactly why, but since it's on my mind, I've got to share it. The last time I saw him alive, he was terribly sick in intensive care. And uh, he couldn't breathe without a machine. And they're trying to wean him away from this respirator. They're having a hard time with him. And he could only write to communicate. And he'd write two or three words, and then he couldn't hold the pencil anymore. So he'd have to wait a little while. And then he'd write a few more words. And one of the wonderful things that Les taught me, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him, but one of the wonderful things that Les taught me was no matter what's going on, no matter how bad it hurts, no matter how confused you are, no matter how crazy you get, thank God for things just the way they are right then. And then talk to somebody else on the program. But in all things, be grateful. Les taught me that. There's another little part of that story. I want to tell you the last thing that Les wrote to me. That this is an experience that I had. This comes as close to a spiritual experience as anything that I had. I said goodbye to Les because I didn't think I was going to see him again. And I went on a vacation. And this was one of those vacations where I just wanted to get away from people. And I went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I loved the outdoors. And all I wanted to do was hike into that backcountry for a couple of weeks and not talk to anybody. And I can't believe it. Every two days I wind up in town and I meet because I was just drawn to that. I got wonderful meetings there in Jackson. And uh, the last day that I was in Jackson on, after this vacation that I had planned one way and it worked out the other, I, I took myself out to lunch at a very expensive restaurant. I never do that. I don't, I don't take myself to fancy places. I don't even like eating alone. But I'm in the patio of this swanky place having lunch the last day of my vacation. And I was overwhelmed with a feeling that I'd never had before. And that was that everything was okay. And the Tetons are beautiful mountains, but you can't see them from Jackson. Jackson sits down in a hole behind this big pile of dirt. I forget what they call that foothill. But anyway, I look up at that mountain or foothill, and even that's beautiful that day. And I can't stop looking at, at, at how beautiful everything is and how comfortable I am, and how serene I am. And I remember praying specifically 
asking God to help me, if nothing else, just remember that once in my life I was that happy. I was that connected. I was that grateful. And I would be forever grateful for being able to remember that. And I still am. It's a wonderful thing. I drove to Salt Lake, left my car there, flew to California to do a workshop. When I got to the workshop, I found out that uh, Les Welch, who some of you know or knew, had died while I was having lunch by myself in Jackson. There are a whole lot of things that happened between that lunch and the airport in Salt Lake. I'll just tell you one of them. Go through some tiny little town in Utah. The circus is in town that day. They've got elephants. They have a high wire act. I'll tell you why that's important in a moment, too. Sometimes things just fit so clearly for me in ways that may not make sense to other people, but where I know that my God's arranging them for me like that and enjoying the fact that he got to program my day that way. He did it for me again last night with a couple of people that I got to visit with that I didn't know I was going to visit with. We didn't know we were going to talk about things we talked about, but it was just very special. Backing up a bit, the last thing that Les said to me, the last message he wrote to me, this is a man dying on a respirator. He said, this is the, vi what, what, I still have the note. It said, this is the very best day of my life. Now that sounds bizarre and morbid, but not if you knew less. And every nurse on that intensive care unit knew what he meant, too, because he had such a profound effect on them, even though he never spoke with his voice to them. What Les meant by this is the very best day of my life was I now know what it really means to be powerless. That next breath is a gift. And so is yours and so is mine today. But we don't realize that very often because we think we're doing this all by ourselves. I want to tell you my favorite story. And it was told to me by Les. I was sober about a year. I was totally screwed up. Called him. I was crying again from the phone booth. He finally figured out who it was. And uh, no use going into details about how I was screwed up. But I said, Les, I've never been in this much trouble. I've never been this screwed up. There's something terribly wrong with me. And I bet you know what it is. Would you tell me what's wrong with me? You know. See, because I have total faith in this man by this time. He said, I know. Come on down to the house tonight, I'll tell you. He, so I went down to the house that night, as I did almost every night for the first couple of years of sobriety. And he said, you want to know what's wrong with you? I'll tell you. The problem with you, Gavin, is you believe too much. He'd always made sense before. I can't understand what's going on. I was just wiped out by this man who I had total faith and trust in telling me some kooky thing like my problem is I believe too much. And that hurt a lot because I'd been working real hard on belief. You see, because in my drinking, part of the story is I worked for the Air Force, meeting the wounded coming back from Vietnam. I can tell you stories about that for a long time, too. But it was the first time I met non-denominational spirituality before I got to AA. John and I were at a conference <laughs> uh, a few months ago where... Uh, well, I'll tell you the situation. Uh, it was a terrible thing to be a speaker at because what I didn't realize, the people, I'm an alcoholic. My home group, I'm moving soon, so I'll have to get a new one, but my home group is the Unity Group in St. Paul, Minnesota. 
But I'm also an Al-Anon. How did I get an Al-Anon? I ran an alcohol and drug abuse program for 10 years. In 10 or 12 hours a day, I'm dealing with people like me. That'll get you to Al-Anon real quick. People like me drive me nuts. Eh? So I belong to the Forest Lake Builders Al-Anon group. I also have joined Adult Children of Alcoholic, and that's kind of a controversial thing. And uh, I just hope you keep an open mind about that. Uh, I belong to the Sunday Evening Forest Lake Adult Children of Alcoholics group. Well, the person who asked me to come to this conference where John was <laughs> wanted me there specifically because a lot of AA people were bad-mouthing the adult children. And he wants someone to say some adult children kind of thing to kind of carry the banner for that group. So he says, is it okay if we put on the program that you're AA and Al-Anon? I said, yeah, that's okay. Well, by the time I get there, there's my name, Gavin G. Al-Anon ACA. See, they left the AA part out. And I'm ready to kill somebody. See? Because that's my primary program. If I'm a drunk Al-Anon, you know, they're, they're dangerous enough sober. Uh, uh, anyway, so I walk into this meeting, and I don't know how many people were there, but it was 600, something like that, this afternoon. And everybody in that audience is laying for me. Besides that, I've been studying at Hazleton, which is a large treatment center and publishing company, for two years. So the rumor has already gotten out that I am a paid professional infiltrating the AA conference, marketing, trying to get people into treatment. I found that out about five minutes before I spoke. So, you know, all I want to do is just be with my AA folks and not be so different and everything. So I prayed, and this is how sneaky God can get again. I didn't even know I was going to tell you this. This is how sneaky God can get because I'm trying to figure out how. Now, this was in Shreveport. Uh, they have rednecks and bigots down there, you know, not you know. I'm trying to figure out how to get this audience's attention and somehow carry a message about my recovery and not shut them off with all these other things that they get upset about. So the person who introduced me says, you know, here's Gavin. I said, my name's Gavin. I'm a recovering alcoholic, a grateful member of Al-Anon. I'm also an adult child. Well, by this time, I've upset everybody. And then I heard my mouth say, I don't know if this is schizophrenic or not, but it was almost like I'm over here watching this guy talk. And I heard my mouth say, and a recovering bigot. And I never qualified that way before. You know, I never thought of myself that way before. And I'm really getting anxious to hear what this mouth is going to say next. <laughs> and then I start talking about growing up as a Catholic and being brainwashed that way, where everything is black and white. The way I learned it, boy, if you were a Catholic, that was hot stuff. And if you weren't, too bad. You know, we had the answer and, and you didn't. And everything was kind of black and white. And then I found out later that I got a disease called alcoholism that dealt in extremes, too. You know, the beautiful references to that in the book were either on top of the heap or under it. But can I identify with that? That cliche, uh, uh, egomaniac with an inferiority complex? You know? That's why people think we're normal. We're living out on the extremes and we're stretched so tight it looks like we're in the middle just walking around <laughs> normal or something. You know? Anyway, the more I talk about that bigotry stuff, the more I realize that I've been the victim of it and that a major character defect of mine is uh, I don't like things that are difficult or in the gray area. I'll spend all my time trying to force whatever's going on either into the black or the white stuff. 
And here's another wonderful thing dealing with character defects. When I first sobered up, and boy, I still get chills when I realize what we're part of. You know, people have been dying in terrible alcoholic deaths for centuries. You and I are alive at a time <clears throat> when there are a whole lot of us who are alcoholics <clears throat> who aren't only not dying, we're walking around loose having a good time and enjoying our defects until they get removed. That's not a bad deal. They really got to me last night when, when they did that countdown thing. I suddenly struck that, that myself and several other people in this room have a lot more years of sobriety than Bob Smith did before he died. And that really shook me up. I, I never thought of it that way before. So we're part of something that is is truly wonderful. Anyway, let me go back and pick up a couple of things that I started. When I was working for the Air Force, people asked me a lot, do you think they're atheists in foxholes? And I'd tell them what I think about that. But this is the time when my alcoholism is full-blown. I'm performing well on the job. The Air Force is telling me I'm doing just great. I'm falling apart inside. And I'm just waiting for someone to catch on and find out what a fraud I am. Because I talk this way and I do that. That's a good description of alcoholism, too. Alcoholics have major conflicts between their values and their behavior. I haven't met one yet that that didn't describe. And the act of drinking will widen that gap and increase that pain. Anyway, I tried to figure out what kind of a nut I was. This is where I went to the psychiatrist. So I psychoanalyze myself. I pray to God you don't do that. It's like do it yourself brain surgery. It's okay up to a point, but you lose track of what's going on after a while. <laughs> and I figured out what was wrong with me was I suffered from excessive guilt. And then I tried to figure out where the guilt from and I, it came from, and I, I figured out real quick. Those nuns taught me how to be guilty. See? So I remember telling a close friend, anything ever got me in trouble was taught to me by a nun. We exaggerate a lot, too, you know, once we get an idea. And I, I've tried to figure out how to get rid of the guilt. And in program terms, I can talk to you this way and you'll understand, even though I didn't know the language then. I decided what I needed was a, a new understanding of God or a different God. And I didn't know about AA, so I didn't know where to find this God other than in Protestant churches. So I'd argue to get the early masses on Sunday. I'd get out of my priest outfit, get dressed up like this, go to a different Protestant church each Sunday. And I'm looking for a different understanding of God. I, I never found more comfort anywhere else. Not because of those churches, but because <coughs> when I attended those churches, I took my alcoholism with me. That's where the pain was coming from. And besides, if you're getting paid by the Air Force to be a Catholic chaplain and you're going to Protestant churches on company time, it doesn't help the guilt a whole lot either. <laughs> anyway, one day somebody asked me that atheist thing again, and, and it, that the word stuck, and I said, that's it. To hell with God, I'll be an atheist. And I tried real hard to be an atheist. And this is literally true. This will qualify me as part of this group, too. I used to pray that I would be a good atheist. I mean, I was going to use every resource I had. Now, why did I want to be a good atheist? I wanted to be a good atheist so I could get rid of this guilt stuff, so I could be a better chaplain. <laughs> you know? 
it doesn't hook up real well. And I love telling that story because when we're in that kind of alcoholic pain in the middle of our drinking, we don't hook things up. We just see one piece at a time. And you know what? That happens to me sober, too. When I'm in a lot of pain sober, I don't hook things up. I need you to hook them up for me. And I need you to be so much a part of my life that without me figuring anything out, I'll be willing to share with you whatever is going on with me. And then you can piece it together for me. And I'm just moving. I'm taking a new job in St. Louis, and it's kind of lonely because I'm not really plugged into AA yet. I've only been there a week. And I don't have that history of people that I trust. It's going to happen. I know it will because it's happened everyplace else I like. Kind of overdid it in St. Paul, this unity group that I belong to. This will give you something to talk about, too. Meets on Wednesday night, starts at 8 o'clock, ends at 10.45. Two-hour and 45-minute meeting. If I'm in the St. Paul, Minneapolis area, I'll do anything to get to that meeting. And we break up into small groups. The non-smoking group that I'm a part of is probably about 11 or 12 people each week. But boy, do you get to know folks if you spend that much time with them, talking about what's bothering you. And this may sound like something else. There's The attitude is there that if you say something, you ought to be willing to ask answer questions about it. So there's a lot of whatever you call that, cross-talk. I guess you got real... You could call it confrontation, but I don't experience that way. There's so much love with it. People are just caring about you. And ever since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, I keep, wherever I go, running into all kinds of people that I learn how to trust. And if, if someone is to objectively put down your history, there's no reason on earth I should trust any of you. But I do. Heard the wildest stories i ever heard in my life when I got to AA. And yet I trust you people. Not all of you. But God always puts somebody in my life that I trust and just feel comfortable with. And that hasn't betrayed me or let me down yet. So now you know a little bit about the circus. You know a little bit about the attempt at atheism. When I'm screwed up and calling my sponsor about a year sober, he said, the problem with you is you believe too much. See how that believe stuff would hurt? (laughs) Because I tried real hard not to believe. And then I get into this mode where I'm trying real hard to believe again. And uh, he said, Gavin, I know you don't understand. Let me tell you a story. Here's the beauty of a sponsor. He knew this story the day he met me, the day he talked to me on the phone. But he didn't tell it to me until I needed to hear it. If you think anybody in this program gets guidance, just watch sponsors. I mean, they they get strength and guidance that is just unbelievable. And so do the rest of us in a group context of group conscience, too. Let me tell you that real quick. My favorite story about if you keep your mouth shut and just trust the group. Some of us started a little meeting in Casa Grande. And uh, one night this old cowboy comes in late, and he's apologizing. And he's saying, boy, I'm sorry I'm late. And I'm sure glad that you people have this program, and I'm glad it works for you. And he kept saying, I'm glad it works for you in such a way that he was creating the impression that he knew it wouldn't work for him. So somebody asked him. He said, oh, no, this won't work for me. He says, I know I'm an alcoholic, but Alcoholics Anonymous won't work for me because I have another problem. You see, I'm mentally ill. I'm schizophrenic. And his definition of schizophrenia was what the Al-Anon lady spoke of yesterday, multiple personality. And he kept telling us, 
<coughs> that he, besides being an alcoholic, he was nuts. Well, you know, we wanted him to be part of the group. You know, he just fit right in. <laughs> and, and yet he didn't feel that invitation, you know. And, and he said, well, I'm crazy. I got, I got all these different personalities living in this. I got the papers out in the truck. Well, I'll, I'll show you. Said, no, no, we'll take your word for it. It's all right. And he says, the problem is I come to these meetings and what you people say makes sense and I try to do it. And on the way home, one of these other personalities jumps up and decides to drink. Well, you know, there's something just a little fishy about that. And right away, I want to jump in there and fix it, but I decided to keep my mouth shut. I said, dear God, please help me to keep my mouth shut and to see what happens. And thank God I was able that God answered that prayer that night. Because I was able to keep my mouth shut long enough to hear some little old lady down at the end of the table. She talked about what she wanted to. And then she turned to this cowboy and she said, uh, By the way, honey, I got the answer to your problem. And she said it with so much conviction he believed her. And she, he said, You do? She says, Yeah, all you have to remember is if any one of you take a drink, you all come down drunk. <laughs> now, here's the real beautiful part about this story. He understood. He believed her. The last time I saw him, he had had four, months, four years of sobriety from that night. I lost track of him. That's not the kind of thing you hear in the mental health office. I mean, God gives us wisdom and a way to communicate it that, that you just wouldn't believe. God uses our weaknesses. Let me finish that other story. I want to get back to weaknesses, too, because I think that's the neatest thing God lets us have. That's what makes us attractive to the newcomers. That's what credentials us, is the fact that we're not well yet, and that we're still enjoying life, and that we're not drinking. Anyway, I'll finish the story with Les. He said, I know you don't understand. Let me tell you the story about a circus, and I'd never heard this story. He said, suppose you go to a circus and you see a performer start climbing up a ladder. He gets 50 feet up in the air. And as part of his act, what he's going to do is go from this side of the arena all the way across a little thin steel wire until he gets to the other side of the arena. And you can believe as much as anybody can possibly believe that he won't fall. This guy's done that two, three times a day for 20 years. He knows how to do that. Part of his act is he pushes a wheelbarrow across from one side to the other. And you believe as much as anybody can possibly believe that he won't fall. Is okay, that's belief. But don't tell me you trust him or have any faith in his ability till you get up there with him 50 feet in the air and sit quietly in that wheelbarrow while he pushes you across. And that's the difference between belief and faith. And you've got a lot of belief, but you don't have any faith. You believe in God, you believe in AA, it's all you talk about. We wish you'd shut up. So you're not going to trust God, you're not going to trust AA, you're going to do it all by yourself. It's my problem. That's my favorite story. And I've told that story to enough of you over the years <laughs> so that very often from time to time I'll really get messed up and I'll say, God, I really got a problem. I don't know what to do. And then, and then, and then somebody will say, well, get back in the wheelbarrow. Oh, okay. <laughs> do I really believe there is a higher power? Yeah, I do. You think it might be okay to trust him? <laughs> well... I don't know about this one, yeah. but to the degree that I can trust, not that I can believe, but that I can trust. And if you're brand new, you're thinking right now, well, I don't believe too much. You believe a whole lot if you got in this room today. Trust it. Hang around with these people. Let them love you. Don't lend them any money, but let them love you. <laughs>
So that's my favorite story, this wheelbarrow story. I got a funny story about that, too. The, the big money man behind Hazleton is a guy who's been sober a long, long time in the Twin Cities area, Pat B. And when I first started an alcoholic drug abuse program in Arizona, I didn't have any money. And somebody set me up with a plane ticket to go see Pat. And said, all you have to do is tell Pat what you're going to do. He's a Catholic. He's in church half the day anyway. And he's this multi-million dollar guy. And he'll give you all this money. Well, I do count Pat as a, as a wonderful benefactor because I told him everything I wanted to do. He agreed with us. It's a great idea. And I said, uh, can you help me out financially? And he said, uh, I'll, I'll help you out financially by telling you how to do the finances. I said, okay. He said, if you're doing something worthwhile and you're spiritually fit, the money will show up. So work your program. Pat B. is one of my wonderful benefactors. He gave me a cup of coffee and some wonderful advice, not a dime. And I'm glad he didn't. Glad he didn't, because he taught me a wonderful lesson. If you're spiritually fit and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, what you need financially will, will show up. That, I get the priorities the other way around. You know, if I just get enough money to do this, then I'll be comfortable enough where I can pray right. <laughs> I always want to be comfortable first before I talk to God. A couple more things about Les, and I'm talking about him a lot because I want to talk about sponsors and, and what they can be. Every night those first two years we'd go to a meeting, and after every meeting we'd kind of hang around and clean up the club, and it was one of those places they locked up after the meeting, didn't stay around too long. He said, come on down to the house, we'll shoot a little pool. So I'd go down to his house and we'd shoot pool till. Uh, 11.30, 12.30. Did that for years. I moved to a different part of town. I hadn't been in their home for quite a while. I went down to visit his wife one day, and I noticed that the pool table had been taken out of the family room. And I said, by the way, Ruth, what happened to the pool table? She said, oh, we put that out in storage. You know, Les never did like to shoot pool. <laughs> and then I knew how much he loved me. This old man who was crippled up with arthritis, who worked long, hard hours, shot pool with me a lot of nights because he knew I needed to be with somebody. And he knew that with the ego that I have, if he addressed that directly, I'd balk. That's how much he loved me. That's how much a lot of you have and do love me. I can't pay that back. All I can do is look for opportunities to be available to other people. <coughs> Here's a good example of the guidance that sponsors get. One night after a meeting, Les and I had been to this meeting, so that was like an hour and a half. We went to a coffee shop. There's another hour. We're going down shooting pool. There's another hour. So we've been together for four hours or something like that. And he says, by the way, Gavin, do you realize how often you begin sentences with the words, I'm sorry? And I said, no, I don't think I do that. Uh, no. Oh. But if I do, I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, he said, I gotcha. And then he really nailed me to the wall because he repeated back to me 18 times that night that I had said or began sentences with the words, I am sorry. And I got that much recall by this time. Huh? I couldn't get out of it. I'm sorry I was late. I'm sorry I didn't see if so-and-so needed a ride. I'm sorry I didn't return the book. 18 examples in one evening. And then he didn't, he didn't let up. He just looked at me right in the eyes, right through my soul. And he said, Gavin, you are the sorriest person I have ever met. <laughs> 
and rarely did he give me specific advice. But he did that, and he says, here's what I want you to do, and I share this with you because I think that whether you say you're sorry out loud or not, uh, a lot of you want to a lot of the time, so here's the advice. Whenever you feel like saying you're sorry, shut up. Okay? I don't know, used to being talked to like that. And ask yourself this question instead of, am I sorry? Ask yourself, am I wrong? He's really talking step 10. And if the answer to that question is, no, I'm not wrong, then don't say you're sorry. Don't say anything. However, if the answer to that question is, I am wrong, say, out loud, I'm wrong. Don't say you're sorry. It was hard to learn that. I've learned it pretty well. I've been fighting <laughs> a temptation for the last 40 minutes to say, I'm sorry, my voice isn't any better shape today, but I haven't said it yet. Um, that's changed my life. Rarely do people catch me saying I'm sorry anymore. That was my identity. Some of you like to talk about guilt and shame and that kind of stuff. It was the, the voice of the shame stuff. the weather wasn't the way I wanted it, I used to apologize. Today I know the weather is not my department. It's a relief not to have to say, I'm sorry it's windy today or it rained or it didn't or whatever. You don't know what a burden that was, being responsible for the weather for all of you. I found out that rarely do I have to say that I'm wrong, or at least not nearly as often as I thought I would. But when I do say I'm wrong, it's a relief and it's a refreshing statement. People don't know what to do with it. You don't hook them in like you do with, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, they get all that self-pity stuff going. And uh, if you just say you're wrong, they'll either agree with you or say, okay. And that's the end of that conversation. It's nice, clean, clear. So you can tell that I've loved this man less who has loved me more than I will ever be able to repay him. Everything he taught me, he learned as a result of coming to these meetings and to hanging around uh, with you people. Let me get back to the ego thing I was talking about. When I was sober, when I first sobered up, I realized that Bill Wilson is still alive. I want to meet the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. I chased him all over Pennsylvania one time. I chased him all over the New England states another time. We never got together. Some intermediaries made some appointments where we were both going to be at the same place at the same time. I really wanted to meet this man, see? He died. I didn't get to meet him. And I'm glad <laughs> today. Something else happened. I was driving by the Scottsdale Alano Club one day at noon. Usually I didn't, I wasn't free at noon, but I was that day. I said, oh, heck, I'll go to a meeting. And I walk into this noon meeting, which is usually 40 or 50 people at that time. And it's like 200 people, and they're crammed in there. And there's this guy up there, and instead of talking, he's doing a question and answer thing. It's special. It's different. I said, who is this guy? So he's Clarence Snyder. He's one of the original AA people. He broke off from the Akron group and started a group in Cleveland. Boy, he was a feisty old guy, too. And you read the literature about the history of AA, you find out that he was a character. And I, he, he taught us some things that day. For example, uh, in the beginnings of Alcoholics Anonymous, it broke off from a thing called the Oxford Group, and to be in the Oxford Group, you had to have two requirements. One, you had to be an admitted public center. Alcoholism did just fine in those days for that requirement. 
and you also had to be a non-Catholic. <clears throat> so the Catholics couldn't get into the Oxford group. So Clarence rebels because when he has success with people carrying the message, they have to be Catholics, but he can't take them to the meetings. So he starts his own meeting. So I didn't get to shake hands with Bill Wilson. I got to shake hands with the guy that let the Catholics in. I'm really happy that that happens. <laughs> and I'm also glad I didn't get to shake hands with Bill Wilson because someday I'd be standing up here and saying, you know, when Bill and I talked. <laughs> I don't need that. You don't need that either. Something else Clarence said that day really got my attention. There was someone very involved in service work and asked him the question, we have these three legacies, recovery, unity, service. I don't hear enough about unity. Do you think we ought to have more talk and discussion in Alcoholics Anonymous about unity? And Clarence says, I agree with that. We ought to put more emphasis on unity. He says, let me tell you what unity is in AA, though. Unity in AA is fighting. First, we fought whether the Catholics were going to be in, then it was women, then it was people who still had a watch left. Then it was people who did other chemicals besides alcohol. He says, we've been fighting as long as I've been alive. Oh, boy, do I not, not want to hear this. That's that gray area crap that I want to get away from. I want it black and white. Huh? I don't want to listen to this guy. He says, there's always going to be controversy in Alcoholics Anonymous and in Al-Anon. And if you really want to be part of the fellowship, you ought to be part of that, too. And have an opinion, and not only have an opinion, but be willing to change it if you see the light from the other side. I think Clarence was right. We've been given something in our lifetime that people have been looking for for centuries. And uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am to be part of that. It came forcefully home to me one time. I used to live in Scottsdale. We have a large retreat house there. I happen to belong to the Franciscan Order. It happens to be in the middle of Paradise Valley, very swanky part of town. And every now and then when friends would come by, they'd say, my God, I don't believe how big those homes are or how wealthy those people are. Do you think he could get me a peek in some of those homes? So I knew some of the folks. I'd do little tours every now and then. And I got tired of it after a while. But anyway, one day I was walking around that backyard looking at all those beautiful homes and thinking about some of my friends that lived in them and everything. And when the people that don't have a lot of money first see that and look at it, they, they talk about the wealthy people. And the idea suddenly struck me, my God, I'm, I'm one of the wealthy ones. You know, I don't have much money. I don't have a house like that. But I really have what most people are looking for. I have a higher power, and I have a way to contact that higher power. And I've come to believe that that power cares for me and that knows more for me in terms of what's good for me than I know about myself. And I just think that's absolutely wonderful. Happen to be con connected with the church, but I think one of the wonderful, most perverse things that's going on today, most of the people who build the churches have no idea what's going on in their classrooms or their basements when we meet. We get to use the things for nothing. And the point I'm talking about, they know that alcoholics meet there. But they don't know that recovery from alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual thing. That's a well-kept secret. The general public doesn't know that. Not only is the dregs of society, the people that you hope don't move in next door, you know, alcoholics, addicts, compulsive gamblers, people who beat their kids. Are, these 12 steps have been used by all kinds of people with problems other than our alcohol problem. 
And they're not only getting well, they're leading happy, well-contented lives. And it has something to do with spirituality. And even though I may not belong to a program that you belong to, we got a lot in common. We can talk about steps. And we can share experience, strength, and hope, even though it's a little different. I didn't realize what a bigot I was until I said that thing at that conference just a few months ago and took an inventory about my bigotry. <laughs> and even though long ago I got over the spiritual bigotry, and, and I still believe that the most precious private youth thing that you have is your relationship with a higher power. And I don't want to tamper with that. And I want to respect it just the way it is with you. And I like talking about it but I don't like to be pushy about that with anybody. Isn't it wonderful that in Alcoholics Anonymous we all get to be teachers, we all get to be students, and under the spiritual principle of anonymity, half the time when we're a real good teacher, we don't even know we're the teacher? <laughs> That's really great. We don't even get to take credit for the thing. Alcoholics Anonymous is wonderful. It's revolutionary. And I can't think of how to fix it. Oh, I talked about the bigotry inventory. I remember somebody, you know these little tokens they give you for your birthday? A lot of times it has the year of sobriety on it and all that. One of the first ones somebody gave to me, on, on one side it had the serenity prayer, and the other side it had the number of years you've been sober, and it also had these words, to thine own self be true. And I would not accept that. I said, that I do not want that medallion. That's not conference approved. That's Shakespeare, to thine own self be true. That's how rigid I have been in my life. What a beautiful concept. Who cares whether Shakespeare came up with it or not? To thine own self be true. I was never able to do that while I was drinking. I was never able to do that until I met you people. You know, there's some people in other programs that borrow our steps that even change the steps. Makes me go wild. They rewrite some of the traditions. It's not all bad. Al-Anon has done that with their traditions. They threw a neat little thing in there about being ever mindful to protect the anonymity of the alcoholic. Not bad. There are two or three groups that use 12 steps with sexual addictions, and I don't know which is which, but they've altered step 12. One of the groups have. They took the word affairs out of step 12. Now, when you consider what they're trying to recover from, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> but the beautiful part about that little bit of trivia is that that's okay with me today. <laughs> you know, I don't have to go down. I think they say something like we practice these principles in our day-to-day -day living or something, something like that. <laughs> Works a little better than affairs. I want to say a couple of things very quickly here, and then I'll be done. I hope you remember that wheelbarrow story and think about it. hope you don't try to do this program all by yourself. You know a lot of things about me, a lot of these so-called professional alcoholism things and being involved in some other programs that I think I qualify for and gain something from. The one I have the most affection for is Al-Anon. I badmouthed it for a long time. When I got sober, we used to say things like this. We're having our meeting here tonight, the enemies across the hall. That was the Al-Anon group. You know, that's breaking down. We don't have to be enemies anymore. 
We don't have to be scared of the adult children movement. It's new and they're having a hard time. And they get addicted to the problem more than they get interested in the solution. But who's helping them with it? Maybe I should say something about that. So let me do this. Why not? <laughs> I had a hard time with adult children of alcoholics for a while until I found out I was one. That was the family secret. I didn't know that until just before my mother died four years ago. And as a result of some of the other things I have done, I was asked to give a talk in San Diego. There was a group of adult children of alcoholics that were going to have a, a national convention in San Diego. And they asked me to come over, I think, a month ahead of time to do a talk, and they were going to have a dance. And the people that wrote to me and talked to me on the phone were insistent that I be at the Shrine Auditorium where the talk and the dance were going to take place at, uh, I think it was 5 o'clock. Well, boy, I'm there a day early, and I got the place scoped out, and I'm there at 4.30. And I'm really proud of myself because I usually show up at the last minute. So here I am at 4.30, and there's nobody around. 5 o'clock, which is when I'm supposed to meet the, the other 11 people on the committee and go out to dinner, there's nobody there. 5.20, there's no one there. At 5.30, a car pulls up way over in the other end of the parking lot. And I'm looking lost. It's like I want to be rescued. They don't pay any attention to me. Another car pulls up. Those two people are talking over there. So they're obviously not the group because they're not looking for anybody. So I go over with them and I said, by the way, do you know anything about an adult children function here tonight? I said, oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, do you happen to be part of that? Uh, yes, we're on the committee. I said, oh, great. I'm Gavin. I'm your speaker tonight. Glad to meet you. I said, I thought there were supposed to be a few other people here. Well, they're not here yet. About 10 minutes later, somebody else shows up. 20 minutes later, three or four other people show up. And we're supposed to go out to dinner. I think we're three people short of who's supposed to be there. So we finally go to this Chinese restaurant, and we find out that it's closed. And we're standing out there in the parking lot. And then by this time, I feel out of place. Like I don't belong with this crowd. And finally, someone says, do you think we should go to another restaurant? <laughs> God, I don't believe this. You know, I know I'm with aliens. huh? <laughs> they tricked me into this thing with these space people. So we go to this Italian restaurant, and we're sitting down ordering, and I am going crazy. How are the three other people going to know where we are? So halfway through the meal, somebody brings that up and says, the other three people don't know where we're eating. I said, yeah, that's right. By this time, I'm praying to God, please help me keep my mouth shut. I want to watch and see what happens. The conversation went that way the rest of the evening. In the talk that I gave that night, I, I did one of these little throwaway lines, one of these little things I didn't even know I was going to say. And it was kind of an offhand remark. And the remark was simply this. Maybe the, neatest, maybe the best thing I can do here as your speaker tonight is to encourage you to have a good time at the dance. I hear, but you know, I got kind of smart. I said, I hereby give you all permission to thoroughly enjoy yourself at the dance this evening. Usually I don't hang around dances very long, but I did that night. I had, I think it was 15 people individually come up and just thank me for giving them permission to have a good time. <laughs> I didn't know it meant that much to them. I mean, I'm learning stuff fast this, this evening. Huh? And they still talk about that. God, Gavin's the guy that told us it was okay to enjoy dancing. 
I was with a lot of people who had been hurt by alcoholism a lot more than I had been hurt. The, the miracle is that that 11 people could put on a national convention. I mean, and, that, and that's, that's their own compliment to themselves. huh? Now, these people were hurt by alcoholism, but they were hurt in a different way than those of us who are alcoholics. The point of pain was different. huh? Let me just show you how different. I told you what happened. Oh, there were other things that night. Um, I won't go into, but, but there was a slow response by these people each time. It was like somebody just yanked something alive out of them or it never got to grow. And how did that happen? Their parents weren't emotionally available for them. Because you can't be an active alcoholic and be healthy, emotionally available for your kids. And you don't have to commit suicide when you hear that. You don't have to go drink again. You don't have to rescue your kids either. There's a God who loves them as much as he loves you and we'll work through those own programs. Let's just fantasize for a moment. You'll see the difference. Let's suppose instead of a, an adult children group, that was an Al-Anon group, and I showed up at 4.30. The whole committee would have been there by 4.30. <laughs> they would have added five other people to the committee. They would have been there since three. They would have known that the Chinese restaurant was closed and made arrangements somewhere else. See, it's kind of like a cultural thing. But it's, it's all the different. If it's a group of alcoholics, they burn a goddamn Chinese restaurant down because it was fun. <laughs> yeah. So we got this this new awkward thing on our hands. Adult children of alcoholics. Some of them are connected with Al-Anon. Some of them aren't. They're having a hard time, and it's easy to make fun of them. But boy, if there's anybody that could do a little rooting for them and encourage them. Uh, it would be us. But we don't do that. And we don't do that because we're so human. When I got so <coughs> sober in Arizona, there wasn't a hospital in Arizona that you could get an alcoholic admitted to. There was such a stigma. Today there isn't a hospital I know of in Arizona that doesn't have an alcoholism program. Now that's a huge dramatic social change. But we forget the stigma. And we forget the stigma that we used to put on Al-Anon. We used to love to put our blame over there. God, those Al-Anons are sick. How'd they get that way? Hung around with us. Yeah, now we finally got it through our head. It's okay for them to get well, too. Well, give the kids a chance, too. I think it's just human nature to pass the prejudice and the stigma on to the next thing that we don't understand. And don't fake it. Don't join a program you don't <laughs> qualify for. But thank God that there is a God who, who came to us and continues to come to us the way that that he has in my life with such a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, maybe when you go home from here you could think of some spiritual thing that came to you in a humorous way. You know, that elephant. I'll stop laughing about that. That cowboy, if any of you take a drink, you all come down drunk. You know, it makes sense. I'm over time. Let me end this way. The first conference I attended like this was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That was 20 years ago. And there's a woman there. I've tried to find out who she is. Haven't been able to do that. She was a Native American. Had a beautiful story. Just spoke from the heart. And she gave me an idea. And I've always wanted to write a poem about this. And I've got a little. I've got a couple of the pieces of it. I'll just share that with you. And it, it stops too soon, but it stops at a nice point. 
And I'll just end with the gratitude that I have about this, and maybe you could finish that poem in your own way uh, later on. And it would sound something like this. I used to live in a little locked box. And the little locked box was me. And it was lined with mirrors. So that no matter where I looked, I was all that I could see. And then I met people like you. And the mirrors turned into windows. Thank you. I love you all.